Optimus Prime is dead and everyone sits around and watches stuff happen. I'm Tom Panneries and this is Origin Story. Who are you? Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are? Who you are, where you came from. Now on, you do as I do. Okay? Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of Origin Story, a podcast mini-series brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries. And what I'm doing here over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time I collected comics. Our comic this time around will be G.I. Joe and the Transformers number 2, which came out on November 4th, 1986, and is the second of a four-issue limited series with the same creative team as the first issue. Michael Higgins was the writer, Herb Trimpey, Penciler, Vince Coletta, Inker, Joseph Rosen, Letters, Nelson Yamatov, Colors, and editing the book was Bob Harris with Jim Shooter, I believe, still being the editor-in-chief. The story is called Power Struggle, although the trade paperback that I have, which is the trade that was issued in 1993 with an Andrew Wildman cover, actually doesn't have the title of the issue. Moreover, since it doesn't reprint the covers, it's hard for me to delineate where one issue ends and the second issue begins. I went with Superion showing up at the end of issue one because of the way the panels are slightly shorter there, which probably allowed for some sort of next issue blurb underneath. And can I say something really quick? It bugs the crap out of me when trade paperbacks don't reprint covers. Granted, if I wanted to see old comic book covers, I can go and look them up on the web. But when I'm flipping through a trade and the covers aren't reprinted anywhere, not even as a gallery on the title page or the back cover, it just bugs the crap out of me because the covers are just as important to the story and I always enjoy looking at them. That being said, the only cover in this issue's entire series that is memorable at all is issue number one, which features Bumblebee getting destroyed. The cover to issue two is by Trimpey and Coletta, shows the Decepticons watching G.I. Joe fight Cobra on a view screen. The action looks like a typical G.I. Joe Cobra fight, but even that's kind of a meh cover, and my general view of the artwork of the issue. But I'll get to the criticisms after the synopsis, which goes as such. So Superion shows up. Scarlet gets on the phone to alert Hawk, and he mobilizes the Joes who start firing at the huge robot. As he's standing there taking hits and thinking about how he doesn't necessarily want to fight them, Superion gets a message from the Ark that Optimus Prime is dead. He flies away, and afterward, the Joes try to make sense of what Bumblebee was. Hawk then goes to see Senator Larkin, who tells him to call her Barbara, and then invites him into her apartment for a drink. At Decepticon headquarters, the evil Transformers stand around, and at Cobra headquarters, they also stand around and watch as the MacGuffin, I mean Power Station Alpha, activates itself via the remote control device that Bombshell had planted on it in the previous issues. 
It's taking off for the Decepticons, but Dr. Mindbender then puts on a helmet that somehow reads the station's frequencies, and he's able to control it as well. The station takes off, and this interrupts Hawks making out with Barbara Larkin, and both of them realize that the Joes have to mobilize so that Power Station Alpha doesn't wind up in enemy hands. Meanwhile, in a Washington farmhouse, Anthony Durante, the kid from the previous issue, sits, sits and stares out into space like Cameron Fry after he found out about the mileage on his dad's Ferrari, except the cause of it for his catatonic state is the Cerebro shell implanted by Bombshell. Back to the action, Cobra Rattlers and Fang helicopters begin escorting Power Station Alpha to Cobra headquarters, only to be intercepted by the Joes. Dogfighting commences, and the only civilians in the area are on a cruise ship that Cobra sees and attacks so as to distract the Joes. Barbara tells Hawk that he has to let the Joes destroy Power Station Alpha, but he refuses because he has orders to protect it, and knows that destroying it would pose a danger to those people as well. Cobra succeeds in stealing the power station. The Joes keep any civilians from getting killed. And as the power station lands on Cobra Island, one of the Decepticon fighter jets named Dirge lands and transforms. He talks to Dr. Mindbender, who makes a deal with him, an alliance between Cobra and the Decepticons. Back in Washington, Miss Durante takes Anthony to the doctor and gets him x-rayed. They see that something is implanted on his brain, and they're going to have to surgically remove it. Back at Cobra Island, Dr. Mindbender, who had planted a bug on Dirge, listens in on their new allies and learns the Decepticons' ultimate goal. Destroy the world and then use the energy that it gains to repower Cybertron, ultimately leading to a Decepticon takeover. I joked at the uh, very beginning of this episode, this is one of the, this is the one where everyone sits around watching stuff and... It's really only true for the Transformers, specifically the Decepticons. The Autobots are more or less taken out of the picture because of the death of Optimus Prime, and Megatron is still alive and leading the Decepticons. So all of that puts this issue between issues 24 and 25 of the series, which means that last issue probably happened simultaneously with issue 24. In what little research I've done for this show, I've seen things here and there where some of the story elements or character beats of the series actually don't fit in with the continuity of the Transformers comics of the time. Mainly, it seems that the Transformers were known entities by the humans, so that Joe's not knowing exactly what Bumblebee was wouldn't make any sense. I guess you could no-prize it, though, saying by saying that the Joes are a special forces unit and they may not have paid such attention to such goings-on, or this is just out of their jurisdiction, so to speak. But then you'd have to no-prize the moments when later on in the series regular people don't seem to know, seem to know what Transformers are. An ignorant populace, I guess? Either way, you can put this issue between issues 24 and 25 and probably between G.I. Joe number 57 and 58 because of the presence of Destro, who had made a reappearance in costume in issue number 57. I'd say this entire rest of the series has to take place after G.I. Joe yearbook number 3, because between 55 and yearbook 3, Snake Eyes is in the hands of Cobra, and he makes an appearance in issue 1 of this series, as does Cobra Commander. And I suppose you could shoehorn this in somewhere, but at the time frame issue number one and issue number two suggests that these events all happen within a few hours of one another. And at the end of issue number two, Serpentor watches Power Station Alpha land and makes a comment about Cobra Commander being dead. So somewhere between all of the events of issues number one and two of G.I. Joe and the Transformers, 
Issues number 53 all the way through 57 plus G.I. Joe yearbook number three have to happen. It doesn't line up. I think I have a headache. Anyway, it's probably best I don't think about it because not a ton happens in this issue. Except that the MacGuffin device changes hands. Cobra and the Decepticons sort of enter an alliance. And in the end, it suggests that the Decepticons are probably the really big, or really are the big bad of the series because of the way Dr. Mindbender listens in on things and hears their plan to drain the world of its resources and use the energy to repower Cybertron. Somehow, this will lead them to taking over again. I, I don't know much of the Transformers title's continuity to say how all this goes. I'm going to assume that's right. Can we talk a little bit about Dr. Mindbender Serpentor for a moment, though? These were characters whose figures were released in 1986, and that's the year where some of the toy concepts start to go a little further out than just a bunch of military-themed toys. Sure, you still have some grounded stuff, some stuff grounded in reality, but then you had characters like these two who were more suited to science fiction and mainstream Marvel superhero comics. Dr. Mindbender is a mad scientist with a mustache and a monocle, but who doesn't wear a shirt. Serpentor is this Frankenstein-esque experiment that Mindbender and a number of Cobra higher-ups pulled off as a way to literally create a leader who could usurp Cobra Commander's power. And he's got this snake uniform thing and a snake chair. I never really liked it. I mean, I, I do remember the build-up to his appearance on the cartoon was a big deal. This is a huge multi-part storyline that my friends and I all watched. But even back then, I was growing tired of those characters. It was more into the ninja-based stuff. Which is all good seating for the future episodes of the show, because um, I'm going to get more detail into Snake Eyes, Storm Shadow, all the characters that I really loved about G.I. Joe. But like I said, it's not like people sit around for the entire issue, but because they like the issue meets an action quota. But the idea of a, a the idea of a dogfight between Joe and Cobra while the latter abducts Power Station Alpha is a good one, but just like the art last issue, the execution just isn't the best. The Sky Strikers, which are basically F-14 Tomcats, are colored green for some reason. There's really no detail to it. In fact, there's very little detail put into any of the art in this issue, and I'm once again going to fault the inking instead of the penciling. Because I know that Herb Trimpey is a solid artist. He was a solid artist at the beginning of the G.I. Joe series. And I've seen some of his art on Special Missions series, and it's also very, very good. But again, there's not a whole lot of backgrounds in this. The Transformers look really clunky, and even some of the panels with the Joes look a little slapdash. The story does move along so that the big device is in the hands of someone evil, and we'll see the consequences of that in the next issue, and Michael Higgins does a decent job of establishing the relationship between the Senator and Hawk, which we'll also develop upon further upon the next issue. But this subplot with the kid, it's just forced. I guess it's a way to show that the Decepticons have no regard for human life or are going to use the humans as best they can without caring what happens in the afterward or, or something like that. I remember buying every issue of this comic series off the stands, either from the comic store or from a stationery store. So I was getting it as it came out. And I read them over and over and over again until the spines rolled and the covers cracked. I mean, this to my nine-year-old self gave me what I wanted in the form of an alliance between Cobra and the Decepticons. And all I needed was an alliance between the Joes and the Autobots. But would we get that? Well, we'll see next episode. I'll be back in a moment.
adolescents this generation have no respect and are a far cry from my sweet Jane Eyre and her friend Helen Burns. Why, just this afternoon I was Stella. walking across, and and you know what, men too. Well, uh, uh, Stella. Men like the tragic Mr. Rochester and teachers, pa. They're all like the villainous Mr. Brocklehurst. Hey, Stella! Uh, yes, Thomas? As much as I enjoy, um, indulging your insanity, uh, we have a promo to record. Oh dear, and what might that be? That is you and I telling everyone that we have a brand new podcast out there. It's called Required Reading with Tom and Stella. Once a month, we will take a look at a single work of literature, discuss it, analyze it and determine if it's worth its place in the canon. Oh dear, that sounds delightful. Oh, I'm sure it will be. And you can find us on the Two True Freaks Network, which is at twotruefreaks.com. Oh yes, required reading with Tom and... Why is it Tom and Stella? Why can't it be Stella and Tom? It rolls off the tongue better? Okay. Well, that was easy. So... Required reading with Tom and Stella at com. Thanks for contributing to the promo there. You did a great job. Oh, you are so welcome. One of the things I've been doing as I, I write the episodes for this show is look at Mike's Amazing World to see what was out at the same time. I had originally thought of doing it as a segment called What I Miss, but it got old quickly as I was going through, because other shows do that, and they do it much better on a fairly regular basis. But I do want to say this is a pretty big month in comics, and I missed so much of it the first time around, because, well, I was nine, and I knew nothing about comic books. So I really can't fault myself in the same way that I can't fault myself for not continuing on with Spider-Man in the months that followed uh, the summer of 1987, so and I and and therefore not being on the ground floor of the Todd McFarlane era. It's not like I would have held on to copies of key issues and mint conditions for the next few years and all the way until today, so I could sell it on eBay and make a hundred bucks. But you know, most of the comics I had from this time as an amateur collector wound up being given away or thrown away or were read and reread so much they wound up in pretty bad condition with spines that were cracked and rolled. So if I was spending seventy five cents or more than seventy five cents, you know, whatever I took where I bought the comic, I may have picked up the first chapter of Batman Year One or the first issue of George Perez's Wonder Woman. I don't think at nine years old I would have owned issue six of Watchmen, though. But really, if I had extra money in my hand at the time, I probably would have gone and bought Jedi Yearbook 3, because that's this issue where Snake Eyes is rescued by Scarlet and Storm Shadow in a silent story that was a sequel to Silent Interlude for mission number 21, because, you know, I was nine. The end of October and the beginning of November uh, were a weird time for me, anyway, in 1986. I've told this story before on the blog uh, about five years ago. When this issue came out, I was toward the end of the first and only time as a kid or as a teenager where I ended up being grounded. The story behind it all is that I was in the fourth grade. My teacher, Mrs. Balsowitz, had these weekly progress reports that she would send home to parents, and the parents had to sign and have it bring us back. If I recall correctly, it wasn't anything really elaborate. She just listed the homework we did and whether or not we had handed it in, plus any comments about behavior. And right about then, I just wasn't doing my math homework. And it was because, well, I honestly don't know what was going through my head at the time. I was just 
I was not exactly of the age where I was conscious of what I was doing or if I was doing something wrong. Anyway, a couple of weeks before this, my mom's parents had landed in the hospital. and It was one of those very odd things where I don't think anything particular happened to them, like a car accident. Or maybe there was an accident or mishap. I just remember that one evening we were sitting in front of the in the den watching TV. The phone rang. My dad picked it up, turned to my mom, and said, "Both of your parents are in the hospital." This has to do with the progress reports thing, because, like I said, I hadn't been doing my homework, and the excuse that I was using whenever I didn't have it was that I was visiting my grandfather in the hospital, which is not entirely true, because even though I had been there a couple of times and my grandmother had been released already, by the way. I would have no problem with getting my homework done because I was supposed to be doing it at the moment I got home from school each day. So anyway, a note about homework not being done. My excuses on the progress report that week, and I didn't want my parents to see it, so I forged my mom's signature, which means that at nine years old, I was almost immediately caught. My parents were not pleased. I got grounded for two weeks, um, it wouldn't have been an enormous inconvenience, but Halloween was like right in the middle of my being grounded. And I already had this like really cool ninja costume ready. Not only that, but as part of my grounding, my parents called the school and they had them put me in the closest thing they could to think of for detention. Uh, so for two weeks during recess periods, which was then I had to sit in the main office. The first week or so wasn't too bad because there was another kid in the class there because he had like a concussion and he couldn't go out for recess on doctor's orders. But that second week was pretty boring. I think I really only made it through by like becoming an office intern. I helped like sort papers and things. At home, I, I was able to do Halloween. I remember my dad coming home one day and telling me that he thought about it. And I should be go allowed to go trick-or-treating. Or, but there needed to be something that I did in lieu of that as a punishment, which wound up being a day of solitary confinement. I mean, I literally spent the Saturday after Halloween in my bedroom for the entire day just reading books. And I think I checked out like all these books about baseball teams out from the public library and just read a bunch of them. Then about a week after that, my, my grounding was over and I never really was in trouble in school for much of anything from that point on. I think I may have gotten an after-school detention with a teacher once or twice because of, you know, general class screwing around. Or, But there was nothing that I did that warranted a meeting with parents or anything like that. In fact, I think it's safe to say I, I was deathly afraid of my parents coming near my school because I was insistent in, quote, fighting my own battles. Like I said, I don't know why I was such a lying little turd at nine years old. Maybe I was testing the waters a little bit because I think that every kid does that at some time or another in the same way that as a teenager you do incredibly stupid things because you think your brain is just not firing correctly. But the postscript to this is that while my grandmother left the hospital before the end of October, my grandfather never did, and he passed away on November 13, 1986. My sister and I didn't go to the wake or funeral because I think my parents didn't want to expose us to that at such a young age. Just something I can kind of understand. The last time I had to go to a funeral was when Brett was about two. It was for my dad's mother, so he stayed with my in-laws. Not wanting to expose a two-year-old to a funeral makes sense. A nine-year-old, I'm not sure. I don't know. Maybe they thought that having me do all the wake and the funeral since it was, you know, my mom's parents, it just it would have been tough. And at least. By going to my neighbors or having a babysitter, they didn't have to worry about my being bored and needed to be entertained. I don't think that I would have known what to make of it anyway, to be honest with you. 
I don't remember feeling that affected right away. In fact, I remember that it was maybe a week or two later. I went to bed on a Friday night and I came downstairs to where my mom was in the den. I was just crying because I think it actually hit me that my grandfather was gone. And her way of calming me down was hugs and letting me watch Sledgehammer, which I guess is a good recipe for a nine-year-old in 1986 to cheer him up a little bit. Personally, I, I honestly don't have a lot of memories of my, my maternal grandfather, my mom's father. And most of them are the type of fuzzy flashes of memory that you get because you were young or, or, or things that you sort of remember because you saw a picture of him. Stuff like, you know, watching him and my dad renovate our den, staying with them in their camper at the beach during the summer, being at their house and watching uh, the team that shall not be named on Channel 11 because he was such a huge fan. My grandmother would pass away in 1995, and we would be over there all the time before that because she watched us, my sister and I, when our parents were away. Or, You know, that was the house that we called home base when they weren't around during the summer days. I mowed her lawn as a teenager. That's how I got my comic money for years. But going back to this time in 1986, I can see why when I think of the fourth grade, there's this not dark tone to it. Because beyond my grandfather passing away, there's just not much bad to speak of. But I get these flashes of memory, and I can picture the classroom, and the classroom always appears as if it's like it's on a cloudy day for some reason. And things seem slightly out of order. Whereas certain years of my schooling seem the opposite. My junior year of high school, for instance, was one of my best, and the tone it takes in my head is positive, bright, like it's always sunny. I guess that's just the way, the, the way my brain works. But this was an odd month or so. The following month was December. It was Christmas, and Christmas of 86 was huge. And I'm going to haul off on that until next episode. And next episode, I'm going to just follow along right on to uh, the next issue in this series, which is G.I. Joe and the Transformers number three. So once again, thanks for listening. Uh, you can leave feedback on the blog and the show notes. You can go to facebook.com slash affidavit to join the Facebook group and leave a comment there. You can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. And uh, as always, thanks for listening and take care. <laughs>